Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft. In my tortured ears, the sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint, distant baying of some gigantic hound. It is not dream, it is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. Sinjin is a mangled corpse, I alone know why, and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplace of a prosaic world where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, Sinjin and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the sombre philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, until finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi we had assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons carved of basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the lines of red charnel things, hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odours our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funereal lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting bald pates of famous noblemen, and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, 
and some executed by Sinjin and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumoured Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed brass and woodwind, on which Sinjin and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodiamonical ghastliness. Whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity, it is of this loot in particular that I must not speak, thank God. I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate, and it was he who led the way at last to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumour and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in those final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and the crumbling slabs, the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivy church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death-fires under the yews in a distant corner, the odours of mould, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, or he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this self-same spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remembered how we delved in this ghoul's grave with our spades and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale-watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death-fires, the sickening odours, the gently moaning night-wind, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying, of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than a damp mould, 
and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long, undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long firm teeth and its eyeless sockets at once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching, winged hound, or sphinx, with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent in the extreme, savouring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither I nor St. John could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it, but as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Leng in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister liniments described by the old Arab demonologist. Liniments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavernied face of its owner and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from that abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we couldn't be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background, but the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants in a few rooms of an ancient manor house, on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night, not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, and another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination alone, that same curiously disturbed imagination which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned strangely scented candles before it. 
We read much in Al-Hazred's Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghouls' souls to the object it symbolized and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September the 24th, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying it Sinjin's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused Sinjin from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was that night that the faint, distant baying of the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, Whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, the queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses we did not try to determine, we only realized, with the blackest of apprehensions, that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but Sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demonic baying rolled over the windswept moor always louder and louder. On October the 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November the 18th when Sinjin, walking home after dark from the distant railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, the amulet, that damned thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim litten moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground, when I arose trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet, after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the bang again, and before a week was over felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled along on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind stronger than the night wind rushed by, 
and I knew what had befallen Sinjin must soon befall me. The next day I carefully unwrapped the greed and jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must at least try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague, but I had at first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I had discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death, beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighbourhood. In a squalid thieves' den an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace. And those around had heard all night above the usual clamour of drunken voices, a faint, deep, insistent note, as of a gigantic hound. So at last I stood again in that unwholesome churchyard, where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows, and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivied church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated, and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither, unless to pray, or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation, partly mine, and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed, not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp, ensanguined fangs, yawned twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade. I merely screamed, and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web-wings circles 
closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How to do the, the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Howard Phillips Lovecraft, The Hound. H.P. Lovecraft is perhaps the most influential horror writer of his generation. He wasn't at the time. In fact, he couldn't support himself through his writing, so he wasn't exactly a Stephen King of his time. He wrote most of his stories for Pulp Fiction books, and because he was so hopeless at the business side of things, a lot of them are out of copyright, uh, whereas more canny writers protected their copyright. I think the thing that Lovecraft did that was, well, there were two things possibly that helped the him continue and become famous after his death. One was he supported a whole bunch of younger writers and he was a prolific, although they call him the hermit of providence, he never came out of his house really, he was a bit of a recluse. He was a very strange character. Um, he supported a lot of writers and he wrote like 100,000 letters in his life, they, they say. His family was originally wealthy, but after his grandfather's death, his father ended up going insane and probably through syphilis, although Lovecraft never apparently admitted this, and Lovecraft himself had a lot of nervous issues when he was growing up. He died, aged only 46, in 1937 of an untreated stomach cancer. It was from about 1913 that he began to get involved in the, um, the, hot, the weird tale scene through magazines. It was mainly through Pulp Fiction magazines, and that continued through into the 30s. It wasn't a respectable kind of writing. And Lovecraft was never really considered a great writer. And uh, when you when you read his stuff, that probably is still the case. Although he does bring something to it. And I think the thing that Lovecraft brings was, if you remember when we've talked about the evolution of the ghost story from a, a folktale originally, you think of the Brothers Grimm and things like that, macabre, through the Gothic story set in forests and castles. And then we have the ghost story, which is an offshoot of that, and the vampire story, which is an offshoot of that. And then we have the weird tale where, and later on we get the gory stuff, but Lovecraft isn't particularly gory, it's just odd. And we see examples of that in, in M.I. James's stuff. As I said, some of his ghosts and monsters are particularly unsettlingly weird. Lovecraft's uh, shtick was that his view was that we as humanity were totally insignificant and likely to be crushed under the feet of monstrous beings from outer space who we would be so powerful we would consider them to be gods. And of course a lot of his stories are people by cultists who worship these monstrous things that aren't have no redeeming features. It's not even like a, a Mephistopheles or a devil in the, in, the, in the Christian, I'm going to say mythology, um, and I don't mean that because I think um, Christianity is a mythology, but the whole devil versus God being equal, which is a heresy, in fact, although it's widely believed, but not to be controversial. The, the devil in that case is actively plotting. Humanity means something to the devil. He wants to beat humanity. But Lovecraft's monsters, Lovecraft's gods are totally, they do not care at all what happens to people. And I think it's that looking up the stars at night and seeing not wonder but horror and that's what Lovecraft brings and that seems to have 
struck a chord throughout the 20th century. And even now, I mean, 2019, just the other night, I watched The Colour Out of Space, which uh, is based on Lovecraft. It wasn't bad, actually. I thought Nicolas Cage was all right. He was far better than he was in The Wicker Man, but that's another story. So, The Hound itself, how this happened was, I'm doing these uh, gothic horror storytelling nights, and we were picking stories to do. And some of them went, most of them went down okay. I did some of my own. One of these days, I'll put one of my own stories upon the on the podcast, see what you think. I hope I don't have to wait until I'm dead. We will, and Jonathan Sharp, who's the guy who does the Hartwood Institute, who does the music with me, and he does the intro to this podcast, he was saying, uh, we're looking for gothic stories, and he said that you've got to do The Hound by Lovecraft. Uh, it's like Edgar Allan Poe on drugs. It's just, you know, Lovecraft never uses uh, four words. We can get away with eight you know, he just piles the adjectives on and he likes the more obscure ones. This leads to him using the same ones, you know, eldritch blasphemies, unspeakable this, that and the other. Squamous, he uses squamous a lot. I don't know if he does it in The Hound, but when you read these things, and in some way he creates a kind of a lurid beauty, I suppose. But he never, I don't know what Ernest Hemingway would have thought about him, you know, less is more sparse prose. Lovecraft definitely, definitely doesn't do that. The story of the Hound itself is pretty simple. These two guys who've Baudelaire and Hausmanns, who I think we've maybe mentioned the great French decadence, uh, you know, Satanism and grave digging and just, just lauding them and all this Victorian stuff. They've just gone over. They just, they, just, they just need a slap, really, but nobody gives it to them and they go and dig graves up instead. What would you say to your kids if that was their hobby? You just would, you, it wouldn't be on, would it? Anyway, so they find this um, jade. Often a lot of his artifacts are jade. There's a little jade statuette of Cthulhu in one of them. And uh, these MacGuffins, as they call them in the screenwriting business, you know when you have this object which, has, which is central to the plot, but actually relatively meaningless in itself. Could be anything. But in this case, it's a jade statuette of an arcane hound whatever one of them is, huge. They bay all the time, I've, I've learned that. You know, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed reading out. It's absolutely over the top. As I say, it puts Poe to shame. So there we go. So, quite short, after saying all those unpleasant things about Lovecraft, and there are more to say, but um, I've written a, I, you know, I've been writing a series of um, Lovecraftian books. So Dark World's Paris is out. So if you look for Dark World's Paris by Tony Walker, it's a Lovecraftian story set in 1927, also in 2027. So it's set in a virtual reality game where the monsters, the great old ones, are, are creating themselves out of the code. And this one's set in Paris. The previous one, Dark World's London, was surprisingly set in London. Um, so it's out now. Check it out. You might like it if you do. You can get it on um, Kindle Unlimited. So, you know, you can just get it as one of your free books. So, yeah. Call to action, if you felt you could, signing up as a patron would be massively well received. That would really help. As I said, we're growing and we're at that awkward adolescent stage whereby we're not huge enough. I don't monetize through advertising and I don't do product placement or anything. So the patrons really help. I've got six now. That's really good. I was considering doing The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, but it's, it's novel length. And what I noticed, interestingly, was when I did Carmilla, a lot of people like Carmilla, but if you look at the, 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 who, how many people listen to it, people listen to the first one, and then it drops off. 
you know. So, I, whereas the standalone stories seem to go down very well. So, I may just stick to stand. There's plenty of them. So, okay. Anyway, have a wonderful week. And I will speak to you again next Saturday or whenever you happen to listen. Okay. <laughs>